Welcome to this magical growing and healing space. A space where two Black women discuss their intersectionalities and how we show up in this world. Strong, resilient, and described as anomalies in a world that has dictated that we should not be here. I'm Danielle. And I'm Dawn. We bring you two Black unicorns. Hi, Dom. How are you? I am great. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm good. It's been a busy morning, but I get into this space and I feel like I can breathe and we can just start to kind of unpack all of that heaviness. Yes. Yes. We were talking a little bit about what your morning looked like and it was very jam packed. And for you, it's only what? One o'clock. Yes, I know. My my poor baby is on the other side of the door and she's like <laughs> sliding notes underneath it. And, uh, <laughs> and um, But it's good because I've prepared her and she has a date, you know, with her daddy and, um, and you know, it's the attention seeking behavior that we were talking about. Yes. And I'm sure that's a lot of a lot of people's new normal where it's like they're in this room, they're in this space where they are being heroes to so many people. Oh, and on the other side of that door, there are little fingers that are like, <laughs> but mommy, can you open my apple pouch? <laughs> mommy, can you get me a spoon? And I'm just like, you, you just, you just want me to you do just something. Want you just, because I'm not available. Yeah. Right. But never mind that like, Yesterday, we literally like had an entire day planned so that she could be prepared for today. We went out and got noodles that, you know, we got ice cream and we did exactly what she wanted. But the minute I'm not in her presence, she's like, yes. oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot to tell you. And she wants to tell me about the drama <laughs> at her preschool or something. Drama at her preschool. You know, it's funny. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, in behavior analysis, I don't know. You guys may have heard this in previous episodes. Danielle and I are both BCBAs, board certified behavior analysts. And um, we know that in behavior analysis, when you reinforce a behavior, it strengthens it, right? Mm -hmm. So here I am thinking like, oh, I'm going to give him access to all of this reinforcement and he's going to be satiated or he's not going to want me later when, you know, I have to go into my meeting. But now it's like, no, this behavior is strengthened. So it's now like, mommy, where are you going? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. why are you going there? <laughs> like he was, I was just like last night, my husband and I were, were in the bedroom and he like stood outside the door and he was like, mommy, what were you doing in there? <laughs> and he was like, it was about 17 minutes. I asked Alexa to set a timer and I'm just like, you, okay, you're doing too much. First of all, get out my business. First right. <laughs> you're doing too much. And I am not yours. Right. It's like, I'm just like, okay. So there is a lot less separation between my hats. The boundaries, right? Yes, and the boundaries that we wear or we try to set. That's funny. Um, Which is why last episode we were talking about maybe setting some of those external boundaries because those internal boundaries are like really blurred right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely um, understand that. And I think when you have young children like you and I have, um, it's easy to think that, oh, yeah, we're just going to satiate them. And for those of you who aren't behavior analysts um, satiate just means when you've had too much of something or you've had enough of something, it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, we're going to satiate them. Um, but that's not the case. Four-year-olds or in 
insatiable. Yes. <laughs> Four-year-olds are, what's the word I'm looking for? They can for? never um, get enough. Never get enough. And they are, um, I'm, I'm thinking of a specific enough. word. Yeah. <laughs> they just, and they're relentless never, is the never. word I was looking for. They just yes. do not stop. It's so, it's so funny. Yes. No, that is true. And I have an almost four-year-old. I was actually, that's what I was doing this morning, planning his party. Yeah. I'm like, how can I be COVID safe, but have the wow factor? Yeah. And then it could be different than last year. It was just so many things going on in my yeah. life. It's like, how can I be super mom today? And yeah. it's like, I don't know here. if you've <laughs> thought about this. We did a COVID-friendly birthday for Sky for her fourth. And we actually did a scavenger hunt, which was like such a big deal and the parents were thankful for it and the children had so much fun. The feedback was tremendous. I asked the parents to get them each, you know, a cupcake or a piece of cake so that we could celebrate like, you know, eating the cake together. But that scavenger hunt was so good. And I had them like, you know, run and get random things like dental floss and socks (laughs) and a red crayon. And so the parents felt like, they were running around the house looking for items and they were worn out after the hour. I think we had a dance party where we put on, you know, some of Skylar's favorite songs and the children got to dance. That's a must. And it was really good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That I, yeah, I understand. You always have to add music to it. Yeah. Well, let us kind of reintroduce ourselves for those new listeners. So My name is Danielle Beal. I am a board certified behavior analyst, but it's not at the top of the list of things that I do. I am um, a fierce mama bear to a 22-year-old and a four-year-old. And in June, all of us will be celebrating our next birthday. Uh, Me and my girls all are born in June, so we're all June bugs. Um, I am a devoted... um, wife to my spouse, um, Trevor, who we talk about a lot. I am a small business owner. Um, I just published a book that I co-authored that became a bestseller. Um, We will talk about that today. Yeah, we will. Um, and, um, And so, yeah, we decided to create this space because Dom and I had so much in common in the roles that we are serving in, um, in multiple kind of capacities, the different intersectionalities of who we are in the world. And we really wanted to create the space that um, supported other women of color along their journeys and just starting to storytell, I think is the theme of, of two black unicorns. And by storytelling, we can share lived experiences and just support other women of color and let them know that you're not alone in this, that you've had women who've gone before you, that there's women watching you that are going to come up behind you and just creating a community of support and love and um, fierce community, you know, communion with. So that's, that's kind of why we developed this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then we're going to talk about why that is so important, hopefully within this episode, because, you know, this episode, we're going to be unpacking a lot, you know, and we'll talk about how or why we normally don't talk about this type of stuff, just because we don't have the support within our community. We don't have, you know, wiser, older Black women or mother figures or, you know, 
um, big mama in the house, like that, that was things that we didn't talk about. So then we just grow up kind of perpetuating that silence Yes. or suffering in silence. Yeah, Um, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So just, well, just a mini introduction, just like Danielle said, yes, we do have a lot of our similar, we have a lot of similarities. We are both BCBAs. We're wives. We are mothers. Um, I am a mother of three. I have a blended family. Um, when my husband and I met, I had a son, he had a daughter, um, and we have a almost four-year-old together. Um, I'll hopefully get a little bit into that dynamic of that relationship because it has a lot to do with my past trauma. Um, but one thing that Danielle, well, one way that Danielle and I differ is we have different stories of how we got here today. Mm-hmm. Right. And the more we grow and talk and just becomes more self-aware, we realize, wow, that could have really took me out. Like that was meant to kill me. Yes. And or, you know, sometimes it's really easy to share our success stories. Like, OK, this is the college I went to talk to this professor and this is how I got this degree. And, you know, but we are very shameful when it's time to share some of that trauma that inevitably happens a lot to black women when we are climbing any ladder trying to you know achieve almost anything because you know we because of where we started yeah Um, yeah I yeah that's you hit the nail on the head Dom and I think um as we're preparing to kind of move into the topic today specifically about trauma I just want to kind of you know, say like, this is content warning. We're going to be talking about difficult things. Um, and so if you don't feel like you're in the space to hear that, we just wanted to provide you with that, that warning, um, because it's not easy to talk about this stuff. And I think people see the glitz and the glamor. I think they see the glory. Um, I'm experiencing this right now. People see all the great things that I've accomplished. And I think they're pretty wowed by that, but people don't really have any idea what it took to get there. And I think that's often missed when you see, um, I don't want to call it a success story, but when you see the glitz and the glory and the glamour that it's like, Oh, that was luck or they were blessed or they were privileged. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like we just don't talk about behind the scenes and what it took to achieve some of that perspective. And I've been saying a lot lately that it's easy to, um, to get lost in what you're seeing. Um, but if you haven't had a personal connection to me, then you really just have no idea about what it took. Like everything I have came at a cost. Um, it makes me emotional. It came at a sacrifice and every smile that you see and every like picture that is filled with joy and happiness came at a cost and a sacrifice and that I had to earn it. And so I think this episode is going to shed light on always offering grace to other people because you really don't know what they've been through. Wow. Yes. Offering grace. I love that. So I don't know if you heard, but Oprah Winfrey just released a new book called What Happened to You? Had you heard about it? No, I haven't. Um, I haven't heard of it, but I'm eager to kind of figure out what this is. 
Mm-hmm. I think I just heard about it recently, maybe over the weekend or last week. Um, but the title of it, I thought, you know, because I am a person, I just ask lots of questions. Like if you meet me, I just have lots of questions. But I thought that was a very loaded question. Um, what mm-hmm. happened to you? And a lot of times we don't ask it that way. Um, we only, you know, look at the present or we see the topography of the behavior and what it looks like. Like, mm-hmm. how does that impact you? But not really asking, like, what happened? And then how does that affect you or impact you now? I love that. Um, so love when that. you think of Oprah Winfrey, you know, she's like that name when you just like, okay. I want to have that Oprah Winfrey type of success, right? She she is she has her own um, label or 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 title, right? And some of us have heard her story. We, you know, those who've been following Oprah, like my mom, she was an Oprah fan, so been, has been following her story for years. I'm from Chicago. She was in Chicago, so we were we're like Oprah fans, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't we we know that she's gone through some some trauma, but to um, I think to represent it at a time like now where a lot of us are trying to be more aware of we need to share our stories. We need to look to what happened in our childhood. We need to address that because I'm learning those lessons that you don't learn. You're they're They're, they're going to keep coming. They're going to resurface until you until until you learn it. And then if you don't learn it, then your kids are going to have to learn that lesson. So it all. Yeah, it all it all takes looking back, you know? Um, so I'm thinking like, well, if, if Oprah Winfrey, Miss Successful, can answer that question, I kind of want to pose that question to the conversation today. I love this because I just shared um, last weekend with a community that I am involved with um, about a conversation that I had with my therapist as a result of a recent trauma that I experienced in my doctoral program that I'm in, I made the decision to go back into therapy. And I have a black clinician who is phenomenal. Um, She always has been, but I felt like I can kind of manage what life was throwing at me and more recently decided to go back. And I'm sitting in her office and I tell her about something that I did, a behavior that I engaged in. And I was very proud of myself for engaging in this behavior because I was letting people know what they could and couldn't expect of me um, as a result of this, of this trauma. And my therapist checked me and she said, well, why did you feel like you needed to engage in that behavior? And I was like, well, because I needed to set my boundaries and I needed to let them know. Um, and I was very vocal about my delivery on, you know, what they could expect from me. And she just challenged me and she pushed back and she just kind of started probing into this incessant need that I had. And as a result, it turned out that the way that I come across when I feel threatened or when I feel hurt or when I feel um, any sort of way that doesn't make me feel good, that I engage in trauma response. And so Some of you guys may know that my nickname is Digga, and I've had this nickname pretty much my whole life. Um, And I always joke that Digga comes out, and she's from the LBC. She's from Long Beach. And then there's Danielle, who's from Signal Hill, which is a more refined, kind of professional, digestible um, 
person. And so we had had this discussion that through this trauma response um, that I engage in quite often when I'm flipping tables and I'm furious and I'm acting out of anger is actually when I feel like I'm a child and I'm not being heard and people are hurting me. And that realization, I known it in bits and pieces, but she said something to me that specifically made me rethink the way that I show up. She was like, Digga isn't needed to be at the forefront of how you present, that you can operate as Danielle because Danielle has been able to cultivate really healthy relationships. She's been able to offer grace to people um, and that Danielle can take, or Digga can take a break. She can sit back. She needs to sit down somewhere um, and you don't have to lead with her. And that just kind of changed my entire kind of perspective. And not that I hadn't been growing in these areas, but realizing that this trauma response is still coming out in the way that I'm interacting with people who I deem as threats or specifically as hurting me. Um, and so you bringing up this book is right on time. Um, because even at almost 43 years old, I'm still realizing that what happened to me is still coming out in some of my day-to-day -day interactions with other people. Wow. So you mentioned flipping tables. Did it get that far? Um, or what was the behavior that, that made you think like, okay. And then is, is Digga, is that easier? Is that an easier response mm -hmm. or is that, yeah. Yeah, it's it, Digga is definitely easier. It's going to make me emotional because it's this armor that I've had to put on, um, mm -hmm. you know, I was 19 when I got pregnant. Um, I had to leave a potentially abusive relationship. Um, it was abusive to some level. I, I see how it could have escalated if I would have stayed. Um, I lost my mom, you know, soon after I had to adopt my little brother. Um, and, and as a result of my childhood trauma, I was abused. I was neglected. I wasn't heard. I would vocalize that bad things were happening to me. The adults in my life didn't listen to me. And as a result of that, as soon as I started finding my voice, like Digga, just like this loud, obnoxious, like angry, uh, like armor, like suit, like mask, whatever, you know, you want to call it. Um, was a way to protect me so that people yeah. didn't think that they could talk to me crazy or that they didn't, they, they could dismiss yes. me or they could hurt me. And so absolutely Digga is like my, my instinct, like whenever I feel enraged about anything, any sort of negative feeling I have, I immediately go to anger. And I know we've joked and laughed, like you, you say, I can't imagine you flipping a table or I can't imagine right. you angry. And a lot of people don't know me because I haven't had to operate under that. But as soon as I'm threatened, it comes out. And so I'm going to say it's not frequent, but she's still there and she's still ready to kind of like suit up and like guns blazing and like let people know like I and I've, I've been saying this like a lot recently like I am not the one and I'm not the two either and right I'm like I'm <laughs> not the two like don't try me um there's another Danielle. saying is like yeah <laughs> imagine how many of us black women 
different levels, right? Different levels of that digger, different levels of that armor that we had to put on. Like for me, I grew up in Chicago and during grad school, I went to school downtown in Chicago. So I had to take the public transportation, which was downtown. And anybody know about Chicago, you know that there's a lot of violence. There's, there's just, you know, they made a whole movie Chirac, right? So because of this, because I am a woman, I'm young, I'm vulnerable. I don't know a lot about the city. I was a bit sheltered, but now I'm trying to be more independent and I'm um, just young. (laughs) Um, I used to have to walk with this like resting bitch face or this meme mug. Anytime I will walk through the city, anytime I would have to go anywhere, I would purposely put on like this changed my whole mood, my whole everything. Yes. So people would feel like, well, if I mess with her, then I have to mess with the angry black woman that comes with that. And then I actually almost use that as um, a shield in some areas. But then when it inadvertently comes out in other areas, we can't function. We lose our jobs. We lose out. Like we, we are just, we are called out in so many ways, not yes. knowing that that is a part of who we are. And you triggered that. Culturally. <laughs> like that, like that, that situation triggered that. But I think a part of working through that is like we have been in this space this past year talking as black women how we're perceived as angry black woman, right? But without mm-hmm. me knowing that I am an actual angry black woman, without knowing that and having that self-act actualization and that self-realization, I'm contributing to the stereotype. Now, I don't want to give anyone permission to label Black woman as angry yes. because it's a huge trigger. I love the way you put it. Yes, yes. We're, in actuality, am I angry? Yes. the freaking lutely And it comes yes. out from time to time because when I, I'm, I'm triggered. Human. When I'm yes. triggered, right? When, but when you cannot use that as a weapon against me. Right. Oh my gosh, you're an angry Black woman. Now I am fearful or I am, you know, so it's really a double-edged sword because it's something that we have to deal with and we have to acknowledge our anger and our past trauma, but we don't want it to demonize us. Be used against us. And I think that's the important part of this conversation is if we can't actually realize that for ourselves, then we Mm. are contributing to the stereotype. We are perpetuating these perceptions. So I think first we have to accept responsibility of how we're coming across, right? Like I understand I'm not digestible. I understand that I am angry. Um, And now that I have that realization, because I knew it in bits and I knew different like pieces, right? But getting this whole kind of realization really made me think, and I think that is vital for us to thrive as women of color, is that if we're not dealing with our past traumas and recognizing what our trauma responses are, then we are contributing to these conversations about what stereotypically an angry Black woman looks like. Wow. I would agree. I would agree. So my, my question is, why do you think Black people in general, but why don't we talk about past trauma, or why 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 is it hard for us to even identify that we have maybe even experienced trauma? I feel like there were a lot of um, 
traumatic issues in my life that I haven't even realized. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning myself. I know I said this in previous episodes that a lot of my answers about who I am are subject to change as I have more awareness of who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the things that are more blatant, I can see, okay, now that was meant to hurt me. And this is how it affected me. And it even got to the point where I was actually diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And then, then then I realized, I was like, oh, that was trauma. I was like, yeah. why did it have to be so big and bold in order for me to say, okay, well, let me deal with that. Let me actually see a therapist. Let me start talking about psychotropic meds because that's another thing that we don't talk about. We don't address it. We don't talk to a therapist about it. And then we don't want to seek treatment for it. So it's like so many barriers that are keeping us disproportionate from healing and dealing with this trauma. Well, I'm going to ask you that same question because I have recently begun my, um, I've been on a healing journey for quite some time, but I'm just now starting to talk about it. Um, So I'm a little bit further along this journey than I think you are, Dom. And so I'm going to pose that question back to you um, and kind of put you on the spot. Why has it been so difficult for you Cause I know, I think you were going to get into some of what caused this diagnosis of PTSD. Um, I know yes. that it's very emotional for you, but why has it been so difficult for you to address that, talk about mm-hmm. it, kind of heal from that? Why has it been so difficult for you? Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about intersectionalities and I feel like I felt shame yes. on all of the different levels, yes. right? I felt shame because of, because I was a mother, because I was, it was just, okay, I'll start from the top. Um, this maybe happened about five years ago um, where I was attacked and I was attacked by someone that was close to me or someone that I was trying to build a relationship with. So I felt like that made it worse because I've gone through life just being very easygoing, almost a people pleaser. Yeah. Because I've always wanted to avoid conflict, you know. So to go through my whole life into adulthood, to where I'm in my career, to where I'm volunteering at my son's school and I'm volunteering at the church and I'm just doing all that I can to be a good person, to be attacked in that stage of, you know, vulnerability, I thought that, um, it kind of hit harder. Long story short, we are, my, my husband and I, we are in a blended relationship. So when we were dating, um, there was an incident that happened between his daughter's mom and I, where she attacked me and it was who it was from. And it was the location. So I was at my son's school picking him up and she kind of blocked me in with her car And she started verbally attacking me first, verbally attacking me and verbally attacking my son and just calling him word, like things like retarded, things like what type of medication is he on? Things things that were so hurtful at that point because my son hadn't had a diagnosis yet. I was still in the trenches of figuring it out, accepting it for myself. So to be attacked in my parenting 
and something that I couldn't control and to just really start spreading all of these very harmful rumors about a six-year-old, you know, was um, very traumatic for me. If, if it would have stopped there, that was enough for me to just go home filled with shame, but it didn't. I tried to walk away, then she physically attacked me. Um, and what made it worse is I felt like the school at the time kind of orchestrated it. So to me, I felt like a failure as a parent because it's like, what type of school do you have your kid in that they are breaking HIPAA violations and they are like being this, I don't know. It was just a really, really crazy situation. It was at a Catholic school of all places. So I felt shame because I'm fighting at a Catholic school that I'm volunteering at, that right. my son goes to, my son was witnessing all of this, right? So then the police came and when it was time to fill a report, I was shameful of that. Right. I was shameful for being a victim, for being attacked, for, for people riding by and seeing two black women in a fight and automatically assuming that that's what we deserve. That's how we behave. It was so many layers of just where I just didn't talk about it. And so then to add insult to injury, after that incident, she followed me to my home and she brought a friend in efforts to jump me at my home. So it, it kind of added a layer of this happened at two very vulnerable locations that, you know, I just didn't feel safe for a while after that. It almost ripped my family apart. It almost ripped my engagement, my marriage, all right. of it. And we are still healing from that. I think because it happened internally and, and, and so close when kids are involved, um, you know, I was, I was shamed anytime I had to go to court, right? right? Because when you go to court, they don't treat you like you're the defendant the or you are, you know, yeah, they, they just treat you like the criminal every time. So it was like month after month, I was reliving it. And I realized it was PTSD when I kept replaying it in my head, yes. right? Yeah, and that's a classic um, symptom of PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't I didn't realize that um, sometimes I would play the actual incident and then other times I would play the what if version mm -hmm. and then other times I will play the next time version. Right. So, you know, this happened. And then very quickly after that, you know, my husband and I, we got married and I became pregnant. So my entire pregnancy, I would still play these scenarios out in my head thinking like, you know, this is Chicago. There is never an end to a fight. People are always going to seek revenge, yeah. you know? So I felt like anytime somebody can roll up on me, how could I protect my unborn baby and still protect myself? How can I, you know, run? Like, so it was, that's when I realized that like, okay, I'm not sleeping. I am, you know, so that's when, and this is me in the mental health field. I had right. been in the mental health field for a good seven years and I've always felt like I could fix myself. And at that point, it start physiologically affecting my body. And then that's how you know, like, okay, it's time to see someone. But it had to get that big in order for me to, you know, that's just like, you got a little bump and then it gets bigger and bigger right. until it's like, why does it have to get that big before you address that there was so much unhealthiness going on right there? Yeah. Um, so it took a while. It took a while. Um, we are still healing from that. 
Um, it took a lot of prayer. And I know we're probably going to talk about this a lot too, about how, you know, we don't seek mental, like in black communities, we either do one or the other, right? right? Either you pray about it or you get therapy. But I feel like for me, it definitely took both because right. therapy helped me forgive and heal, but prayer helped to heal her heart, right? Yeah. Anything I did in therapy wasn't going to do anything for her heart. So we are able to be co-parents now because I felt like God healed her heart in a way that there is some major restoration there that I would have never imagined. Yeah. But I felt like it was a combination of both. Well, and I also tried psychotropic medication, um, which didn't work for me because I had a very sensitive reaction to almost anything I tried. But at that point, I was finally willing to try something, something. you know? Yeah. yeah. And I think what you're talking about is this natural working through it, like with psychiatry or psychology, right? Mental health and then supernatural. Um, yes. And I think you're absolutely right in that that gets blurred. And typically as like when you're in the church, um, it's easy to kind of be consumed with, well, God will heal everything. But I, I've been saying for years that there's really a natural dealing and healing that we have to go through. And not that I don't believe that, that God can handle it, but we have to kind of deal with this naturally. Um, you know, the physiological, the psychological, like, and, and, you know, I don't want to get into, to the spiritual kind of component in this episode, but I think those lines get blurred. And so a lot of people, especially in the black community, are kind of Christian based and Christian focused. And so they miss a lot of opportunities to seek professional health with, which I think kind of furthers the stigma of not seeking professional help or be being considered, you know, kind of crazy or not being as spiritual as, as you're supposed to be. And I think that that causes damage, which I know we're going to talk about in later episodes, but I think you hit the nail on the head. There's this shame that is associated with even talking about it, especially when we have worked so hard to kind of climb these mountains, yes. move these mountains, when we have achieved a level of success emotionally, psychologically, mentally, physically, um, generationally. generationally, culturally, right? When mm -hmm. we have kind of um, moved past some of the stereotypes, like I, I was on welfare, right? Like I grew up poor, I grew up without means, and then I got pregnant at a young age and I had to collect welfare and that was a lot, um, you know, and when you move past some of that stuff, then it's like, I don't like, and for me, it was, I don't want anyone to know that this is who I really am thinking that I was defined by my circumstances. And so that shame is very real. But one of the things that I want to just make it a point to say right now is that shame is what we feel when we've done something wrong. And that's the definition, right? And so remembering that like you did nothing wrong, like I did nothing wrong by being on welfare and kind of actualizing that definition has helped me kind of check what I think is coming up as shame. I'm like, I don't, this isn't shame, right? Because I did nothing wrong. What is the feeling I'm feeling? And let me kind of work through that. But shame is not it. Guilt is not it. Because specifically in order to be shamed, or to be guilty, you have to have done something wrong intentionally, right? And 
we can spend a whole nother episode kind of defining what that is, but that comes up a lot in why we don't share our stories. And I think what's so important about two black unicorns and this relationship that you and I are developing, Dom, for our audience is that we are telling these stories so that young women of color don't have to carry some of the weight that we've had to carry in our journeys. We're unpacking it and we're giving you permission to let go of some of that because without talking about it, we can't learn from each other. And so going back to your original question, why don't we talk about this? I think because there's so much stigma and shame unnecessarily attached to these journeys that we're having to go through. That is the one thing that will strengthen the trauma is avoidance and not talking about it. So us having generations and generations of secrets and not talking about it, it's actually making the trauma and the trauma responses stronger in us. And I didn't realize that. I I didn't know that we had power in telling our story and having Um, like a a, a, um, intimate support group that you can share this with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's also with fear of gossip, right? Yeah. You know, you share your story and then you fear that they're going to share it with someone else and then you're going to share. And that's really big in the community. Just gossip. Someone knows all of your business. And I think that's why we keep those type of things to ourselves. Um, Like how, how do we find the difference between who we share this information with. Well, I when think, do we share? Yeah. Well, when I think did you we, start sharing. I just started sharing that. Like really? I just started sharing. Yeah. Like, and it took a global pandemic for me to get to a place where I was like, maybe I should like say this out loud. So whenever I, I told did not know that. Yeah. Dom, like this has just happened within the past year. And so Um, I was going to say discernment, Um, going back to your right discernment, right? And I know we talked about this a a couple uh, episodes ago. Previously, like, if you got close to me, I felt like you needed to know, like, why I did the things that I did and why I acted the way that I acted. So I would tell people close to me bits and pieces. Not one person had ever heard my trauma narrative chronologically or even calmly because anytime I was sharing it, I was sobbing. And again, that shame and that guilt, and um, I was embarrassed and I just felt like I was exposed. I felt like, um, I felt like people who heard some of the things that I had been through would like think I was dirty or that I was unworthy Um, And so it was discernment. And I I gave you this information just so that you could understand me a little bit better. And again, in bits and pieces. And then George Floyd was murdered and I was outraged. I think we talked about this. And simultaneously, I was working on my dissertation where I was starting to come in contact with other Black women survivors And this is the first time that I had connected with another person who had gone through anything similar to what I've gone through. And for those of you who don't know, I've had extensive, um, prolonged exposure to trauma. And so meeting just one other Black woman um, 
who could share a portion of the trauma experiences that I've had was life-changing to say the least. But then to have come in contact with 10 participants and these women were sharing their stories with me and calling it research and calling it data collection, I was deeply humbled to be in their presence where they had the courage to talk about all the things that they had experienced. And I was coming in contact with a Black community that I never had before and was realizing that the work that I was doing, that I've done over the course of my career, that it was meaningful work and that I was serving in a capacity that was meaningful. But as I was listening to these survivors and watching their bravery and watching them use their voices, I felt like it wasn't fair that like I was terrified and that I was shamed. And so I was asked to contribute on this project called Phenomenal Woman. And they wanted to hear about me, what it was like to adopt, you know, an 11 year old at 19 years old, you know, with, with the baby. And I was like, I'm not a writer. And the, um, visionary author was like, well, you're writing a dissertation. And I was like, yeah, but that's different. Like, this is about other people's story, not mine. But all of this culminated into me really like doing deep reflection. I had simultaneously been working with survivors in my internship. I had started to treat as a clinical psychologist survivors and their trauma. And so I'd made the decision to contribute a chapter of my story, but that became so healing as I re-examined my own trauma, it became cathartic. It became a way for me to really serve in a different capacity. And as a result of that, I was invited to speak on a podcast where I chose to kind of talk about the same things. I had to talk to my spouse because a part of my story included him. I had to talk to my older daughter because a big part of my story had to include her. I had to talk to my little sister who generally were estranged from each other, but I had to share a portion of her her story and her trauma. And I had to get permission to talk about my truth, but really wanted the respect of other people that my story included. And that's how I started sharing it. And within the first day of this podcast episode being released, I was overwhelmed with feedback from people who I can't even like tell you how overwhelming. And I still get like, it's, I don't even know how to describe it, feedback on a daily basis about someone who's heard my story and had thanked me for, for using my voice. And so that's, it, I, I didn't think that this would be the result of that, but this podcast was birthed out of a need to continue talking because there was reinforcement in me just sharing a little part of my story. And through, again, that feedback that people have given me, I've been able to let go of a lot of that negative self-talk and that negative perception of what telling my story would be like. Wow, Danielle, thank you for sharing that in this space. I know that anytime you choose to share your story, that's that's a choice, right? We don't you don't have to there, there are some days that, that you're you're not going to share that you're that you're right. not in that space. You know, it's just like coming out. You can choose to come out 
every day. You can choose to come out to every single person or you can just, so I am, I am appreciative that you are, that you have shared it in the book, Shanamana Woman, because when, when, when I tell you, and I know I text you over the weekend after I read it, um, I was sobbing. Like, I didn't expect that. Like, I, my husband came in and was like, are you watching This Is Us? I was like, no, I was not expecting this. And it's not that it was a sad story. Well, it, it is. Um, but I didn't I didn't cry. And I told you this. I, I didn't cry at the at the sad part. There was a lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened at a very young age. Um, it resonated with me because even at a young age, you saw those glimpses of those people who were meant to be in your life to bring you to the next level, to get you out of that. And I know a lot, I know with me, a lot of our listeners, we probably have been in that low place or, or are in that low place and we can't see any way out. But the tears start pouring down my eyes when you were like, but no, this person, this person who wasn't even related to me, loved on me. And this person sent me to college. And this person, like uh, 200 people showed up at my wedding. You know, imagine going your whole life not feeling loved. And then 200 people show up. Like, that's like the ultimate, I love you, sign, sign of love, you know? So God just works in mysterious ways. And I don't know how you see your story now, um, but I'm sure the individuals that you've worked with in your internship and during your research, they probably feel like you were placed on this earth for that moment to talk to them. Like no one else would have had that experience helping them heal. And you may have questioned like, why did this happen to me? And that may have been that answer for them. Like, no, she was placed right here for me with this story so I can heal. I am just in awe of your strength, your resiliency, your bravery to share your story and, and the light that you shine so bright right now. Like you would have never thought that, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> if it's you okay. guys haven't noticed by now, we, we let it all out. We, we keep our tissue right here and we are unapologetic about it. So, um, thank you, Dom. Thank you for that. I'm I'm over here sobbing as I generally do. Um, well, yeah, I think the realization that I've come to as a result of being in a global pandemic is that this is my divine purpose, and my entire life, I've I've heard as a cliche, God doesn't put more on you than you can handle, or Mm -hmm. And my entire life, I've kind of questioned, well, like, you know, why is God choosing me to move this mountain? And I've always described myself as a bird with a broken wing. I've always viewed myself as weak because I was overly emotional and extremely sensitive. We talked about being an empath last episode, but that people who I trusted not even that I trusted, but that I was born into intentionally broke my wing. Um, and they didn't just break my wing, but they like caused, you know, like permanent damage. And I would like always question like, why, like, why am I the one who's chosen? Like, I'm not like strong. I'm not 
you know, I would hear words like resiliency and tenacity and grit. And I never, I never attached those words. I always said I was weak and I was all of these things. And then as a result of this year and what I'm learning as I'm doing research on what resiliency looks like, I'm realizing that I am that definition. And for the first time again in 42 years, these words, tenacity and grit, like, I'm like, this is what it is defined. Like, this is what it is to operationally define what these definitions are. And, you know, you asked how I view my story. Um, like, I don't get sad about the little girl who wasn't loved or protected or taken care of because I've been healing from that. I find comfort in knowing that my story serves to support another young woman of color. And a part of my divine, divine purpose has been accepting that my journey, um, and not just my journey, but my healing kind of process is literally to serve and support another young woman of color. And so that's how I summarize that. God has had a plan for my life, and I wasn't aware of that until recently, and now I am honored to be able to carry, I think, the past, you know, 42 years of my journey, if it helps, just one woman. Yeah, and sometimes we don't view what we've been through as trauma or traumatic. We don't have the actual diagnosis or we don't have anyone to validate what we've been through. You know, sometimes we only think of some of the more egregious acts like being held up at gunpoint or just, you know, and right. that has actually happened to me. And I never tacked that moment as trauma. I grew up in Chicago, right. you know, and even where you grow up can be a traumatic environment. Right. You just brush it off. I was just reading an article, being a young mother, being a, a mother in a low social economic status or a mother with no support, like yes. that in itself can lead to a lot of trauma and yes. depressive like symptoms and anxiety. And we just brush it off. We don't talk about it. We don't label it. Right. Uh, we don't treat it. Right. And, you know, you're talking about psychological trauma. We're talking about physical trauma. Mm -hmm. We're talking about financial trauma. I've recently just experienced educational trauma. There's racial trauma that we're all learning about in this past year. Um, and trauma mm -hmm. is really a part of that definition. Just pulling out my clinical psychology hat for a second is repeated prolonged exposure to anything that doesn't make us feel good. And the reason why we know it's trauma is because in hindsight, when we're out of that trauma situation, we are experiencing flashbacks or repeated memories or nightmares or anxiety comes up as a result of thinking that we might come in contact with that again. So when we're talking about like financial trauma, living in a lower um, socioeconomic kind of conditions or community where we don't have access to food or, um, you know, resources, 
living in that state part community right like playing outside sunshine Mm -hmm. all of these things um and I don't want to over sensationalize the word trauma because I don't want it to dilute when someone says that they've experienced trauma but it's Mm -hmm. important to understand the conditions in which trauma is defined and again that's repeated prolonged exposure to anything that doesn't make us feel good um And that causes psychological, emotional, mental, um, insert, you know, a word, um, damage to who we are and how we function. And so I think understanding that and realizing that when we have these reactions outside of being in that situation, that it comes up and it comes out and we may not even be cognizant of it. And without the support of professionals. I know you talked about, you know, psychotropic drugs um, and medications. Me personally, because of my trauma, I don't drink. Um, I'm not a big drinker. Um, I will say last week I took four sips of a very strong drink and got like the insane giggles and everyone was thrilled to see me respond this way. I was deeply (laughs) out of my comfort zone. It was pretty funny. We called it a very intense situation because everyone was shocked. And I think when people hear me say, I don't drink, I literally uh, might have one drink that takes me like four hours to finish. Um, I took four sips, literally four sips. And um, it just threw me into a giggle fit and I was deeply uncomfortable, but I, you know, and I don't take drugs because again, I have a traumatic past. My mom was an IV drug user. She was an alcoholic. And so I'm deeply terrified of those generational curses being passed along to me and my children. And so I've always been like, nope, I will not take anything. I will handle it myself. I'm not necessarily, I'm not saying that that's necessarily you know, going to benefit everyone. But for me, you show up now that shapes what you have access to as far as treatment. Exactly. And, and even as an example, when I was in intensive therapy in 2014 and my psychologist prescribed drugs and I refused to take them. And she kept saying, this is a trauma response, Danielle, like you need to consider this. And when I wouldn't, she was very angry with me. And she was like, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. If you're not going to do what it takes to help yourself, I'm limited. And that kind of shook me. And so I knew that I wasn't going to take these prescription medications. And so I, you know, I think I've shared my journey of like, okay, I don't want her to be the only one working in this relationship. So I would get out of bed um, and I would make my bed. And that would be the, the, thing that I checked off for that day. And then I would get back in the bed and long story longer, I guess, in this instance, eventually I moved to sitting on the porch for five minutes and then getting back in the bed. And then, you know, it kind of grew from there, but that's how I had to start my healing from that deep clinical depression because I had made a conscious choice not to take medications. And now it's still difficult. It's still like, you know, I, I'm not in a deep clinical state. I don't have, you know, active or passive SI right now, but I do every day have to make a choice. Like, how am I going to show up and how am I going to fight these mental challenges, these mental kind of battles that are happening in my head, um, without, you know, medication. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's an option for everyone, but that's how, that's the choice I've made to kind of continue this battle that, that, that I'm in. 
It's, it's funny that you mentioned that I had a similar situation where at first they would prescribe things and I would look at them like, I'm not taking this. And it was right. just more of a black people. Yes. Don't do that type of thing. And even if I did, I was shameful right. to even right. tell anyone about it unless another black person would say, Hey, I take that too. Like that was like right. the only thing that would give me a little you need um, validation. Yeah, right. Yeah. So anyway, I tried it and I just didn't have a great reaction to it. I was extremely nauseous. I was fatigued. And you know, in our field, it's like what's the risk to benefit ratio, right? And I tried it for a long time and I felt like I was worse on it than off of it. So I, you know, talked to my doctor and I was like, okay. So I can't do this, but this is what I'm going to do on my end right. to kind of combat what I'm not taking with it. So that's when I had to make the choice to get up an hour earlier than my yes. family, to have that devotion time, to have that time to myself. I used to do yoga. Um, I used to have this gym that I go to. I had to search myself for the gym. So, so I set all these things in place and then the pandemic happened. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And I'm, now I'm really still trying to figure it out. It like, and it's a year in and I'm like, okay, what were you saying again about those psychotropic meds? Yeah. <laughs> like, can we revisit those now? And, yeah. you know, it's okay. You know, just like you said, I had to go back to therapy. And I know we probably said this, we will always say this, every therapist needs a therapist. Yeah. And there are sometimes, you know, as therapists, we feel like, I know this, I can do this. And we go and say, well, I'll do the heavy lifting, but we forget to come back. Yes. Um, so I am, I am in a place where the more I'm vulnerable and the more I share my story, the more I'm admitting, I don't know it all. Yes. And I know a lot. I know enough to say my story and my truth, but I'm also admitting that I need validation from other women who've been through this to let me know that I'm not alone that I'm not insane, that this is a lot to bear. And, and this shouldn't be normalized that we are have long periods of exposure to things that doesn't feel good. I could think of at least five things yeah. that I'm like, ooh, that went on for way too, too long, long, you know? And, and Dom, like, like what, you're, what you're describing as community, like mm -hmm. I didn't realize that I didn't have like I had a really good, you know, I, I have people who love me, who aren't my family, who, you know, I had to learn like how to love and how to let them love me. But like, as far as my career and, and, and my education, like the people who are my community, they couldn't push me along my journey in other areas. And so one of the things I'm realizing now at 43 is that this community that we've created with each other, Dom, within, you know, Baba Black Applied Behavior analysts like I'm working with the black student union at the school I'm I'm attending like and I'm realizing that this collection of other specifically for us black women black BCBAs black doctor black doctors right black clinical psychologists and PhDs like black students black students right like mm -hmm. all these different intersections black mothers all these different yes. intersectionalities of like we need communities in those areas so that they can say this is normal this is like you can get through this even the support like I've been saying these past three months I can't fail because of the black woman who were like continuing to support me 
and these intersectionalities of who I am. And for, you know, all of our Black unicorns out there listening, like whatever ethnicity or culture you identify with, like, do you have communities that serve those different intersectionalities? Because I think one of the things that Dom and I are realizing is that's what we need to get us through this because it's easy to feel like this is just me. I'm isolated. No one else Mm -hmm. has gone through this, right? Like depression, for instance, is very isolating and depression will have you thinking that you're in a hole by yourself and no one can see you. And that is far from the truth. I think we all have experienced different levels of trauma and mental health challenges and, and overcoming these barriers. And so I challenge you that if you don't find a community that serves at least one or two or three of the different intersectionalities of who you are in your own lives, because that is how we get through some of these challenges is is that support. I would agree with that. I've been doing a lot of talks. Um, I did a couple of trainings in April um, just on autism acceptance, right? Um, I told, I mentioned that in a previous video, I have an 11 year old son who's autistic and he's been autistic all of his life, right? But it wasn't until maybe the other day because this changes on a daily basis that I am, you know, addressing him with all of his intersectionalities, right? He's young, he's black, he's a boy, he's autistic, he's loud, right? When everyone else is like, a child should be seen and not heard, he's sensitive, right? So, you know, not just for us, we need to have accountability partners for us, but make sure you cultivate these relationships for your families, for your spouse, for your communities, you know, talk to your homegirl, send her that text like, hey, I see that you've been struggling with keeping your composure and you're always popping off. Maybe you need to talk with this person because she used to have the same reaction and, you know, just each one teach one, like everyone grab a buddy and like, let's do this healing thing together because we are not doing ourselves any good or any service, keeping it to ourselves, acting like it doesn't exist, that is not there. It's funny because we talked about all of the trauma responses. I feel like response is obsessive compulsive behaviors, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Or always being extra busy. busy like busy we talked about like, we serve at the church and we're mothers and we're on like all of these boards. We have like two or three podcasts going, like it's all of these things. And that is a trauma response. One of my therapists told me, she says, no wonder you don't know what day it is. You're disassociated. What are you hiding from? What are you avoiding? And I'm like, everything, everything, the thoughts, you know, I don't want to sit with my the thoughts. demands. So that, yes. 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 So I always have something playing always. Yeah. I've noticed like, okay, Dom, what are you avoiding here? Again, like 2020 in this global pandemic forced us all to sit down somewhere yeah. um, and to address kind of those issues. And where I'm going to say, I've been on this healing journey I was kind of able to thrive during this time because I had kind of done that work. But what it took for me is intentionality, awareness, self-reflection, which I think is important, right? Being able to kind of look at yourself in the mirror and see the truth, right? Like not denial. Um, I'm going to leave you with one last example of 
as you talk about OCD and I tend to be a little compulsive about things, especially like cleanliness and the way I present. Um, when I was younger, we had a neighbor who came over and she used our restroom and she pulled me into the bathroom and I was like maybe 11. Um, and she pulled me into the, the bathroom and she was like, look at this. There's like pee on the floor and there's toothpaste on the right. Cause we didn't live the cleanest. Um, and I'm even like, look at me, I have anxiety sharing that. Um, it was my environment and I really had no control over that. I didn't even have an awareness, but this neighbor came in and she like got on her hands and knees and she was like, this is all it takes for you to like have a clean bathroom. And she cleaned our entire bathroom. And I remember the shame and the guilt that I felt. And I remember feeling like I had done something wrong and like not even having the awareness that anything was wrong. Right. And so as a result, the way it shows up in my life today is I am obsessive about my space. Um, when you walk into my, I clean my bathrooms every single morning, Dom, like if I don't mm-hmm. do anything else, if I'm late to any meeting, this, I'm letting you guys know I'm, <laughs> I'm cleaning my toilets, right? Because I do not wow. like, but this is it, right? Those trauma responses. And even I share that to kind of just challenge you guys to think like, what behaviors are you engaging in now? that are directly resulted from an experience that you had that didn't make you feel good, right? Now we're Mm -hmm. kind of labeling this as a potential trauma. And I want to be very careful that we're not telling you guys that you had trauma, but as you're kind of reflecting, do you need therapy? Do you need to talk to a professional? Do you need to work through some of the issues that may be potential um, as a result of your past? And so I share that story because even in something like that, where again, I'm joking about like, I'm late because I had to clean three toilets this morning, um, that this is a trauma response. And Mm -hmm. without that acknowledgement, it can deeply affect the way that you show up. And so again, Mm -hmm. our challenge to you, um, our listeners is to really consider what your behaviors um, that you're engaging in are costing you and how they may manifest from something that happened in your past. We would love to hear your self-reflection and your yes. journeys. If you want to email us at two black unicorns podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and hear what that journey has been like for you. You can also message us, which is keep up with us on Instagram. We like to post a lot of Instagram stories. Yes. So that's also two black unicorns podcast on Instagram. And we want to know, do you need more of this? Do you need another dose of just unpacking this? Because this was a lot, Danielle. I'm so proud of us for this episode. I'm proud of you. I know I'm I'm a little further along in my journey. I'm very proud of you because I know this. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't make it easier. I'm proud of you too. Thank you. Thank you. We will give each other the flowers. I love you. We will look forward to continuing this journey with you all and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.